G'day! Welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. This week in episode 19 we're going to look at the way the new British arrivals in Australia, starting in the 1780s, reacted to some of the completely unfamiliar Australian fauna, and at the ongoing interest in these creatures. In particular, we'll be retelling the story of their first encounters with our wonderful platypus, the kerfuffle caused when the platypus specimens were sent back to Europe, and we'll be reminded of the platypus's place in development of Darwin's theory, and of our World War II relations with England. The wonderful platypus, of course, was well known to the Indigenous Australians, and they have a number of Dreamtime stories to explain its unusual form, even amongst the many unique animals native to Australia. And we'll finish by recalling a few interesting encounters, and by taking a look at how our platypus is faring today. Previous episodes of the Australian Histories podcast have covered the extended story of the Kelly Gang. Today's episode will be a one-off story, so I hope you'll enjoy a bit of a change of pace and a change of focus in looking at our tales from the past. I really love doing the research on this one. But before I begin, I'd like to thank Jesse O and also Eamon for the lovely reviews and helpful promotions. Some new listeners have found their way to the Australian Histories podcast with your help, so I'm very grateful. Eamon actually hosts his own podcast called Melbourne Marvels on interesting Melbourne occurrences. Currently, he's doing a series on William Buckley, and if you don't know that story, I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing about it. I'll put a link to the Melbourne Marvels podcast on my webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. And just to finish off, can I send out my grateful thanks to Ricky B and also Rob C for their kind donations. I'm already gathering material for the next big story towards the middle of the year, so I've used that to purchase some relevant books already. Thank you both so much. Now, let's get on and ponder the platypus. When the British James Cook and his crew first arrived on the east coast of Australia in 1770, and in the following years, as the convicts and their jailers began to arrive from 1788 onwards, these northern hemisphere new chums were in for quite a bit of adjustment. The Aussie seasons, the climate, the unusual plants, including the non-deciduous and very sparse-looking eucalyptus trees, The thin soil and the very weird animals were all a foreign and unusual sight to everyone in those early days. Gamage showed in his book, The Biggest Estate on Earth, that the fire stick farming the Indigenous had undertaken over millennia had made the environment around Port Jackson, as the British named it, look a lot like an English park. Well, in a good season, before the heat of summer at least. You can imagine how Cook and Joseph Banks could envisage the place, further cleared and successfully dotted with deer and cattle. But as the first fleet arrived, underprepared and underprovisioned in the heat of an Australian summer, the reality of the harsh environment and the unfamiliar creatures would have had them all perplexed. Up close, this did not look like the fertile opportunity Banks had described. Colonial survival here with only their limited European knowledge of land management and fauna, was precarious for a long time. 
Despite the local indigenous people being able to live off the bounty of the land and manage the resources through the seasons and the changing cycles of drought and plenty, escaped convicts and others leaving the British settlements usually starved for want of knowledge about the unfamiliar edible plants and animals and for want of skills required for gathering or capturing and preparing them. Australian kangaroos are not animals that can be successfully farmed and managed in fence paddocks, the way cattle can be, for example. Initially, just the strangeness of the flora and fauna would have limited their imagined uses, and not all were suggestive of a good meal, though hunger might encourage one to have a try. And of course, old Captain Cook was known for being prepared to eat anything he came across in his travels. I'm not sure if that makes him a brave and intrepid explorer, or a complete crazy man, but his diaries are full of descriptions of the taste of any number of exotic creatures. I think trying the new delicacies recommended by the locals would be good manners, but just scoffing anything that moves may not have been a pleasant experience. He fed a walrus to his crew and almost caused a mutiny, so that's a dish to be avoided. And, of course, he himself was later cooked and eaten in a ceremony I'm sure he would have approved of if the right dressing was used. (laughs) Anyway, back to the story. These Australian animal oddities were certainly of great curiosity value. The British arrival in Australia coincided with the Age of Enlightenment, the pursuit of knowledge and scientific investigation. Indeed, the First Fleet were unexpectedly greeted by one such international scientific expedition just days after their own arrival in Botany Bay. The La Perouse expedition was expected to further chart, map and open new maritime routes in the Southern Hemisphere, as well as identify trade opportunities and enrich French science and its scientific collections. Initially, the British arrivals here were just trying to stay alive. So, while the First Fleet were busy trying to eke out an existence in this strange place, many, with contacts back in the old country, delighted in the prospect of discovery of these largely previously unknown species, well, unknown to the Europeans at least, such as Banks and Cook had reported in their diaries. These animals would provide some income to those who could trap and preserve specimens and send them home to eager naturalists. In 1770, while Cook's ship the Endeavour was undergoing repairs in far north Queensland, after a run-in with the coral reef, Cook wrote of the odd flora and fauna he saw there, much of which he deemed, quote, queer and opposite, unquote. Of the wallaby that Banks saw there, he noted in his journal, quote, instead of going on all fours, it went only upon two legs, making vast bounds, unquote and commenting that it could well outrun his greyhounds. We take for granted the beauty of these animals now, and the fantastic biology and physics that make them so successful in the Australian environment. But just try and imagine, if you'd come from Europe for the first time, how astonishing and bizarre even the kangaroo must have seemed, compared to the familiar deer or sheep. Cook, and no doubt Banks as well, ate some of the remarkable creature, and then they prepared the wallaby skins and skeletons for transport back to favoured naturalists in England and beyond. The scientific community was so delighted that quite the important and lucrative trade immediately developed. These specimens were sent back and taxidermied on arrival, as well as they could be, seeing that the taxidermist had never seen the creatures in real life, 
They had only the skin and possibly skeletal remains to work with, and if they were lucky, maybe some accompanying drawings. Each new animal was studied, discussed and classified by the European scientists. I was listening to a Big Ideas podcast on the ABC recently called A Natural History of Europe with Professor Tim Flannery talking about, amongst many other brilliant things, his interest in paleontology and his latest book called Europe, A Natural History. He recounted the story of one of the earliest wombat specimens sent being prepared in England. The creature was entirely unknown and the closest familiar animal the taxidermist could think of was a bear. So the specimen ended up being mounted for display, sitting upright on its bottom, front legs in the air like a miniature grizzly or like a cartoon-style begging dog. (laughs) This is a hilarious image for anyone actually knowing what the live wombat looks like. If you're not Australian or if you're a city slicker not familiar with the wombat, you really need to stop the podcast here and look one up. They are affectionately known as the bulldozer of the bush. They're head down and just ploughing along on all fours. No way would one of these creatures ever lift its hefty body up and perch on its hind legs. Though it does have the most amazing habit of hoisting its bottom up high so that it can poop on an elevated point to mark its territory. Square poop too, so it doesn't roll off. That's a whole other amazing story that we won't be following here, but I kid you not. Anyway, it's now very hard to imagine an era where one could not simply just look any animal up on your phone, a time when these creatures were completely unknown and literally foreign to the Europeans, and indeed almost all of the rest of the world. When live kangaroos were finally brought to England successfully, the public interest was massive. Anne Moyle, in her wonderful book called simply Platypus, quotes from a 1790 London poster advertising, quote, the wonderful kangaroo from Botany Bay, the only one ever brought alive to Europe, on exhibition at the Lyceum on the Strand from 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 in the evening, different from all quadrupeds, Let it suffice to observe that the ingenious are delighted and the connoisseur impressed with wonder and astonishment at the unparalleled animal from the southern hemisphere. Apparently vast crowds came to view the kangaroo, willing to pay the pricey one shilling fee to see the beautiful and amazing animal. But as interesting and unusual as the kangaroo may have been, a much more enigmatic and curious animal was about to be discovered by the British and it would go on to perplex and delight the world's scientific community to the present day. In November of 1797, on a lake near the Hawkesbury, the first recorded British sighting and capture of a platypus took place. The following year in 1798, David Collins published a book titled Account of the English Colony of New South Wales, and he wrote, quote, The Kangaroo, The Dog, I assume here he's referring to the dingo, perhaps? The opossum, the flying squirrel? And I have no idea about that one. We don't have squirrels in Australia. The kangaroo rat, a spotted rat, the common rat, and the large fox bat, if entitled to a place in this society, made up the whole catalogue of animals that were known at this time, with the exception which must now be made of an amphibious animal of the mole species one of which had been lately found on the banks of the lake near the Hawkesbury. In size, it was considerably larger than the land mole. The eyes were very small. The forelegs, which were shorter than the hind, were observed at the feet 
to be provided with four claws and a membrane or web that spread considerably beyond them, while the feet of the hind legs were furnished not only with this membrane or web, but with four long and sharp claws that projected as much beyond the web as the web projected beyond the claws on the fore feet. The tail of this animal was thick, short and very fat, but the most extraordinary circumstance observed in its structure was its having, instead of the mouth of an animal, the upper and lower mandibles of a duck. By these it was enabled to supply itself with food, like that bird, in muddy places or on the banks of the lakes, in which its webbed feet enabled it to swim, while on shore its long and sharp claws were employed in burrowing, nature thus providing for it in its double or amphibious character. These little animals had been frequently noticed rising to the surface of the water and blowing like a turtle." Unquote. In 1798, Governor John Hunter recorded watching an Aborigine spearing quote, a small amphibious animal of the mole kind. Unquote. It seems that the platypus were hunted for food, but that the meat was not really highly desired by the indigenous. Hunter sent its skin, preserved in a keg of spirits, along with that of a wombat. Ooh, I wonder if it was the one Flannery was talking about. Anyway, he sent them to the Literary and Philosophical Society of Newcastle upon Tyne. He later told an anatomist, quote, The small creature had fought for its life with such force that it caught its assailant with its spur. Oh, sad. Other platypus specimens were collected, dried, and sent to Joseph Banks, but neither preservation method perfectly preserved the feel and the shape of the animal. Governor Hunter had made some really quite good drawings, labelled with its early scientific name, Ornithorhynchus paradoxus meaning bird-like snout and puzzling, to accompany the skins. So we have there the first clue that the scientists were extremely puzzled by the strange, paradoxical creature. The scientific community spent a lot of energy trying to figure out its characteristics so that they could correctly classify it, but it had so many oddities that it didn't quite fit anywhere clearly. Thomas Berwick and his General History of Quadrupeds from 1805 described it as an animal of, quote, suri generis, a Latin phrase that means of its own kind, in a class by itself, unique. Indeed, it did not fit neatly into any of the existing classification scheme classes. It was given the order label of monotremata, making it and the echidna the only two members of that exclusive monotreme club. In Flay's book, he lists some early descriptions of a platypus, and then he recounts a lady who, in the author's own lifetime one assumes, quote, searched mightily and long for something to which she could liken the platypus, only to come up with the startling conclusion that the animal resembled a hot water bottle, unquote. Now the hot water bottle being now pretty much an obsolete item from the past might not help any of the younger listeners, but again, if you're not already familiar with what a platypus looks like, do look up some images and also search for baby platypus. They really have to be the cutest animals on earth. We see the little fellow gliding under the water's surface on our 20 cent coin. And Sid the platypus was one of the mascots at Sydney Olympics in 2000. So I will put some of these images and illustrations in the show notes at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au along with a link to an early paper by George Shaw, who's credited with writing the first scientific description of the platypus. 
When those early specimens arrived in England, they created a huge controversy amongst the naturalists. There were those who felt the platypus was so odd that it must be a hoax. Many forgeries at that time had been brought into the voracious scientific communities from the newly explored lands, such as a mermaid specimen that had been expertly grafted together from mummified monkeys and a fish. <laughs> Apparently the Chinese were particularly skilled at these deceptions. So the early dried platypus skins or the stuffed specimens were thought to be fakes. Those preserved in spirit were thought probably a little more reliable. And sure, fully expected stitches might be found on the strange creature he had access to, and he minutely investigated the pelt. Quote, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means, he wrote in 1799. Of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its conformation exhibiting the perfect resemblance of a beak of a duck engrafted onto the head of a quadruped. It was only with the most minute and rigid examination that we can persuade ourselves of it being a real beak and snout of a quadruped." Unquote. Based on the specimen, Shaw guessed that it must be resident in watery situations, noting its bill and webbed feet. He also guessed that the creature, quote, has the habits of digging or burrowing in the banks of rivers or underground, and that its food consists of aquatic plants and animals, this is all that can, at present, be reasonably guessed at, unquote. So that's not a bad summation for 1799, really. Shaw also produced the first published illustration of the platypus, based in part on the sketches from New South Wales Governor John Hunter. There was much argument about classification owing to the known unique elements and unusual physical structure of the platypus, some of which crossed over the different classifications, and because of the as yet barely known or unknown elements. But one wonderful piece of the history related to the scientific assessment of the platypus is the crucial and pivotal impact the creature had on the development of Darwin's theory of evolution by means of natural selection. Now that's a pretty big leap in scientific knowledge, so we should thank our little platypus for that prompt. Darwin had arrived in Australia in January 1836. He was on the last leg of his epic journey on the Beagle, which was now making for England. Apparently he was at first unimpressed by the dry and rather uninteresting landscape and vegetation he'd found around Sydney. Again, a hot January may not show off the Australian countryside at its best, for a European aesthetic anyway. Though the sparkling Sydney Harbour now draws in the international travellers by the actual millions each year. But Darwin by that time was weary of his travels and he was getting pretty desperate to be back home. Fortunately though, as he had always done, he took the opportunity to travel out with the local guides and gather as much information as he could about the land and its flora and fauna during his brief stay. Geology being one of his favourite interests, he made for the very impressive Blue Mountains region, northwest of Sydney. That name comes from the bluish haze that's always evident across the beautiful vista, created by the tiny droplets of eucalyptus oil in the atmosphere around the trees. He thought the vast plateau, the escarpments and canyons there, were likely created by erosion, but the timescale required to do that was hard for him to fathom. 
He later came to understand that the timescale he needed to be working in was in the millions of years, rather than just the few thousand years he had considered prior. And he later realised that those early thoughts on geologic erosion were correct. On one day they were walking along Cox's River at Wallarawang and observed some platypus there. In watching their behaviour, Darwin noted that it displayed similarities with the European water rat. Swimming and foraging in the water, its nest burrowed into the side of the banks. On the same trip, he'd also thought that the marsupial potteroo took the place in the environment of the European rabbit, and he went on to ponder further how these different-looking animals filled the same ecological space in the landscape, perfectly adapted to the local environment. That they seem to fill the same ecological niche, one type for the northern and one for the southern hemisphere, was an important catalyst for his thinking. In his diary at the time he pondered, well, for the first time recorded at least, why a god would make two different animals for the same purpose. And so the slow realisation and understanding began then, resulting later in our understanding of his thoughts on natural selection in evolution. Species did not remain static from a single point of creation, but continued to evolve and adapt to their environment. Australia had been separated from the larger land masses for so long, a great deal of special adaptations were in evidence. I'm sorry to say, though it's not the least surprising for the day, that he then had his guide shoot a platypus so that he could more closely examine it. Such was the method of investigation in those days. But the truly special thing to note is that his diary at the time clearly shows him pondering how and why such animals might have been created in parallel with one in the other hemisphere, and over the years pondering other ways these creatures may have otherwise come about. We know that voyage was pivotal in setting Darwin on this path. Indeed, he noted it in later correspondence, saying, quote, The voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career." Unquote. But I had always assumed it was the Galapagos and those finches who could take the credit. But Platypus, you should take your rightful place as muse to the theory of evolution by natural selection. In 1853 Darwin wrote, quote, I feel a great deal of interest about Australia and read every book I can get hold of, unquote. but he never returned to our shores, or indeed anywhere else instead living his life out at Downhouse in Kent, England, thinking and experimenting and corresponding with scientists from all over the world. Cambridge Press has put online much of Darwin's writings and the pages where he records those observations and thoughts can be found in the Beagle Diaries reproduced there. Details can be found in my reference list at the AustralianHistoriesPodcast.com.au along with some other articles talking about his brief but invaluable stay in Australia. So, our monotremes are exceptional, and the fossil evidence includes specimens dating back at least 100,000 years, and it seems to be the sole living representative of its family and genus, although a number of related species appear in the fossil record. Theories about how and when they hived off from the two other mammalian groups the marsupials and the placentals, are still being explored. I read that one theory sees them branch off from the other mammals over 135 million years ago. 
with the other two diverging from each other much later, between 135 and 65 million years ago. The second theory had both the monotremes and the marsupials diverging from the placentals first, around the 135 million years, and then soon after those two branching off from each other. But either way, at least 65 million years ago these groups were developing quite separately, with the monotremes continuing to evolve in the now isolated Australian landmass, thus winning the prize for the most bizarre classification. As one funny meme I saw put it, the platypus both lays eggs and produces milk, thus being the only animal capable of making its own custard. <laughs> So the platypus discovery was intriguing to the scientific community and indeed caused quite the bun fight in the early days. And certainly this element is one part of the story which I find really interesting. Now keep in mind this is a history podcast and I'm not a zoologist but I'll give you a more thorough description here from my understanding to describe just what is so special and bizarre about the platypus. The platypus is widely known by that common name or sometimes referred to as the duck-billed platypus. Its official species designation, a name slightly differing from Hunter's early label, is Ornithorhynchus anatinus, anatinus meaning duck-like. Though Moyle in her book Platypus notes that the taxonomical place of the monotremes is still a live debate. About the size of a domestic cat, the larger ones can get up to around 2 kilos in weight. It has thick, brown, insulating and water-resistant fur, has large front feet with large webbed paddles, and walks on its knuckles on land to protect that webbed membrane. As Shaw mentioned, the rear feet have less webbing and larger, stronger claws instead, being perfect for digging, and also spikes on its ankles for defence. The spurs on the male are venomous, but while painful, it's not life-threatening to humans. And that's a little bit un-Australian, isn't it? Interestingly, Hobbins writes that recent DNA sequencing has linked its toxins to those of the snake, the scorpion and the sea anemone. So, while the focus on classifying the animal may have been in the past largely based on the lactation in the female, for example, linking it to the mammals, Perhaps the venom in the males could argue for some affinity with the reptiles. Anyway, we can see how the argument is difficult to settle. It looks like it's part mammal, part bird and part reptile, and apparently its genome indicates that it actually is those parts in one. Many jumbled physiological features of the platypus remain an important subject for study and discussion, from fields such as evolutionary biology to medicine. That odd duckbill is firm but covered in soft skin with tiny nostrils at the top and internally the adults have a sort of a grinding plate rather than teeth as such. The platypus feeding on small water creatures from freshwater shrimp to grubs and worms and the like. Perhaps one of the most interesting things about them is the way they find their dinner. They locate their food by electroreception by detecting tiny electric fields generated by muscular contractions in their prey. It's only its order buddy, the echidna, and one other known weirdy species of dolphin that have this capacity, and apparently the platypus is by far the most sensitive. These electroreception and other sensors are found along the front of that beautiful duckbill, 
and you would see their little heads sweeping the mud in a speedy side-to-side -side motion if they were foraging for food. If you'd like more detailed information about the platypus from those more expert in their biology and behaviour than I, I have noted a couple of well-credentialed books in the reference list. I have had the pleasure of seeing platypus in the wild and they certainly are fantastic little swimmers. I've never heard it but apparently they have been known to growl and emit other noises on occasion and there are still more weird things about them. Things like they live at a much lower temperature range than other mammals. Their ear structure is quite different and they have some extra bones and unusual sexual organs amongst other adaptations. But the really good stuff is the egg laying. They dig a nest, for want of a better description, in a riverbank, but the nest underground above the water level. When the babies hatch they are fed milk, which is simply secreted through their skin and licked off, rather than via a teat like other mammals have. On the scale of other Australian animals they are relatively rare, or at least pretty hard to actually come across in the wild, being secretive and shy and usually solitary. So the platypus does not have a group noun either, like a mob of kangaroos for example. And there's no well accepted term for its babies, though apparently the Taronga Zoo suggested puggle, <laughs> which was already in use for the young of the other monotreme, the echidna. Those sweet little babies certainly look like puggles to me. So they sure are odd little fellas, and not just odd looking. They are such discreet little creatures that, despite the scientific interest, beginning in the 1780s, very little was learned about them for many, many decades. And while there had been early rumours of the animal being egg-laying, this was generally disregarded as a ridiculous idea. Indeed, egg-laying was only confirmed in 1884. They are so sensitive to their environment that even today they are difficult to keep or to breed in captivity, so studying them is still a challenge. Of course the platypus was always well known to the indigenous peoples living in the east of Australia, before the British discovered it, and they were well aware that the platypus laid eggs, produced milk and had venomous spurs. They could have saved the European scientists decades of grief if they'd just been asked. Traditional names for the platypus used across New South Wales and the Victorian tribes included Malangong, Tambrit and Dalawarang. An article by Archer in 1990 recounts the Wiradjuri tribe describing it as the ugly duckling in their dreamtime creation myths. It seems the platypus came into being after an attractive young female duck, often called Daru, mated with a lonely and persuasive water rat named Bigoon, the babies inheriting the mother's duckbill and webbed feet and the father's legs and luxuriant brown fur, thus becoming the first of the platypus. Another story has a fire spirit transforming a more ordinary looking creature into the exotic platypus. The platypus has fascinated so many over the years, being particularly coveted in Europe where such an animal seemed almost mythical. One particular fan took a break from his wartime activities to request six be sent to him, though for a long time it was a hushed exercise, kept quiet along with other wartime secrets. In Flay's book, Paradoxical Platypus, he recounts how he began studying the wonderful platypus in the 1920s, 
he became enthralled, working with, quote, an amazing array of stuffed specimens, lifelike and labelled with cards about distribution and classification. But no one appeared to know anything worthwhile about the actual bush creatures, unquote. Luckily for the rest of us, Flay then spent the rest of his life becoming that expert. Healesville Sanctuary, about 65 kilometres east of Melbourne, was originally set up by Dr Colin Mackenzie as the Institute of Anatomical Research in 1920 on 32 hectares of land, that's uh, like 78 acres, which had formerly been part of the Corrindirk Aboriginal Reserve at Healesville. The Healesville Sanctuary operates now as part of the Melbourne Zoo and it specialises in native Australian animals with an exceptional platypus conservation program and the wonderful World of the Platypus display for visitors. Healesville Sanctuary remains high on the list of places one might take any international visitors if in Melbourne. While Harry Burrell in Sydney was the first to successfully keep a platypus in captivity, the first platypus bred in captivity was born at the Healesville Sanctuary in 1943 when it was managed by David Flea. So a little bit of Melbourne-Sydney rivalry being played out there and coming out even. So while the platypus had already done its bit for the development of the theory of evolution by natural selection, its more recent history saw it making a sacrifice for the war effort. Flay tells of a highly unusual and totally unannounced visit at Healesville from the Commonwealth Health Department in 1943. They had come to him with a request. Apparently Winston Churchill, who surprisingly was quite the romantic, had long been keen on the little creatures and he must have thought that while in the middle of fighting a world war, this was just the time to request six platypus be sent to him in England. <laughs> and I'll just add here a note about the potential controversy on the plural of platypus. I've heard some suggest it should be platypi, or because of its Greek origin, platypodes. But the Oxford and Macquarie dictionaries both say platypuses, and Flay, being the expert in his day, also uses platypuses. So that's how I'll refer to platypus plurals too. So, amazingly, in the middle of a terrible war, in which Churchill took an active and detailed interest in every aspect, in March of 1943, he turned his attention instead to the Australian fauna. Lawrence wrote a paper in 2011 considering the reasons why such a seemingly bizarre appeal might have been both requested and acted upon by Prime Minister John Curtin here, despite a ban on the export of such animals being in place. The request probably originated from Churchill's lifelong interest and desire for a platypus himself. He'd developed a fascination for exotic animals in his youth, and like a great many of his aristocratic compatriots, established his own menagerie and plant collections later at Chartwell House. I'm sure he would have loved to have added a platypus to that. And of course there was a well-established history of diplomatic gift-giving involving exporting one's indigenous animals to friends overseas. There would have been massive costs involved in bringing over the platypuses mid-war and a diversion of attention at an important time for England, but the payoff for receiving the first live platypuses in Europe for the London Zoo would have been a real morale booster for the war-weary public there and a great diverting attraction once in the collection not to mention a defiant snub to the enemy. 
though of course it was all to be kept completely top secret until the animals had arrived, at which time they would be announced with great fanfare, BBC broadcasts and media releases that would get the public involved in collecting worms for the new arrivals. Quote, to be sent in jars packed in mould or moist tea leaves to satiate the platypus's voracious appetite. Unquote. Another consideration would be that the zoo itself and the scientists associated would also be delighted with the opportunity as having a number of live specimens would help elevate their authority in the ongoing classification discussions and decisions within the scientific community. And finally, Lawrence suggests that the act of diplomatic gift-giving would help soothe and strengthen the fraying relations between Australia and what had previously been considered the mother country during the long and difficult war being fought on several fronts. She quotes the naturalist Gerald Durrell calling the exercise gloriously quixotic and suggests that the previously mentioned considerations actually make the whole affair look less eccentric in that light. Though Faye was well aware platypuses did not travel well and took a great deal of time to acclimatise to being contained, he did consider how he might accommodate Churchill's request. He felt it would be impossible to successfully transport six. For one thing, feeding them enough on the sea journey would be a tricky exercise even for one. And no previous attempt had ever been successful in getting a live platypus to Europe in the past. Flay convinced the authorities that one platypus might be the best they could hope for. In April of 1943, Flay caught a suitable candidate, a young male with a strong constitution and likelihood of surviving in captivity. He was christened Winston, of course, and while they made sure he acclimatised and fed well, they also set about building the portable platypusery <laughs> and collecting food to store for the journey. Flay also stipulated that a crew member must be allocated as the dedicated platypus keeper on the journey and that Flay would give him a crash course in care and feeding before the animal could be transported. They slowly acclimatised Winston to the travel container and hoped for the best. By July, Fay had begun thinking it just might work. Food continued to be stockpiled and in September, with the platypus in good shape, and the minder having undergone training with Flay, Winston and his, quote, 50,000 specially selected worms, unquote, were transported from Healesville to the docks for loading onto the MV Port Phillip. The first part of the sea journey went well, and they made it safely through the Panama Canal, but it was always the Atlantic that was most likely to give them trouble. Apparently, to that point, the little fella had been doing unexpectedly well, feeding normally and this is the big concern when they get stressed so hopes for success were high but just four days out of the liverpool dock the ship's sonar picked up an enemy submarine and depth charges had to be deployed fortunately for the crew the ship did escape the encounter safely but the exquisite sensitivity of the platypus meant it was badly shocked by the detonations it seems that the heavy concussions actually killed poor Winston. Lawrence reproduced the official reports in her paper, which also noted that the keeper, worried that the food would run out before they made port, had recently reduced the rations from 750 worms per day to 600. And I have to say I'm completely amazed at the huge amount of food that little fella puts away. They must have to work day and night in the wild to get that amount. 
Anyway, the suggestion in the official and confidential report was that this reduction in food may also have caused a slight reduction in vitality, thus contributing to Winston becoming the first platypus casualty of war. Sadly, by mid-November, the exercise had failed, and little Winston was destined to be stuffed by the Royal College of Surgeons in London. Interestingly, it was only a few years later that Flay was able to move three live animals to the New York Zoo successfully, by air for the longest part of the trip, I think, though feeding them was again a difficulty which nearly brought them all undone, until they discovered the platypus loved devouring the huge South American cockroaches, which the Americans could supply in vast quantities. And once they settled into the zoo, the platypuses attracted in excess of 40,000 visitors a day. So our little platypus has been quite the star of scientific controversy and enlightenment and has captured the hearts of many, from lay people to the titans of science and war, and thus should hold a proud place in our history. So just before we wrap up the platypus story, you might like to know these last few things. In the 1800s, they were hunted for their fur, as up to 70 pelts were needed to fashion a coat, it decimated the populations. Fortunately, they were finally given the protection they needed, and later, conservation programs were developed. There has been for many years very little success still with breeding in captivity, but I'm happy to say that the last few years have seen the celebrated arrival of Puggles at Hillsville Sanctuary its distribution in the wild is down from pre-colonial times, of course, but assessing just how low the population is is difficult, though at present it is classified by the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species as Near Threatened. As with most animals around the world, the encroachment of human modification of its usual habitat can be expected to put greater pressure on its ability to thrive. So let's hope that our planners are careful to mind our waterways in particular. Currently, platypus are the focus of some further brilliant research. Of course, they can be markers for pollution in our waterways, like a canary in a coal mine, but the amazing platypus may yet prove to be a very valuable animal for the health of humans more directly, too. The CSIRO recently reported on research into the biochemistry of their milk. Platypus babies do not have the additional luxury of drinking their mother's milk via a teat, Instead, ingesting the milk secreted through the external skin of the mother, and so could be expected to be more susceptible to bacterial infection. And yet, this didn't seem to be an issue for them. Investigating, scientists found that the milk, being not only highly nutritious, also contains bioactive properties that are anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, antioxidant, and antimicrobial. So that's a great find in an era of reducing antibiotic options. Of course, the animals are notoriously difficult to work with, but fortunately, the scientists have already identified the protein structure of interest, and they can work on that in the lab to gather more knowledge. It's exciting because solutions that come from these proteins may offer a completely different path to usefulness in treating bacterial infections. Woohoo! Go, you good platypus scientists! So finally, before we finish up this exploration, I'd like to leave you with this little gem by Strawn, reproduced in Moyle's book and called Platypus. 
The first ornithorhynchus confused early thinkers. They said, oh good lord, it's an obvious fraud. Somebody has stuck the front end of a duck with the skill of a weaver to part of a beaver. It's no less a fake than the mermaids they make. From fish and an ape, a ridiculous jape. We now know it is real, though I can't help but feel that from tail tip to muzzle, it still is a puzzle. Well, thank you, Strawn. <laughs> Very good. So, that's our first episode done for 2019. Quite a move away from the Kellys, wasn't it? I hope you enjoyed it. And remember that the reference list and some images can be found at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And just a reminder, that's history spelt with an I-E-S. I'm still deciding what to run with next month, but hopefully that'll be ready for you on the fourth Friday. Anyway, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful few weeks. I'll talk to you then. Cheers. Cheers.